Welcome back to the PMHMP podcast, the definitive podcast for those passionate about mental health throughout every stage of life. Whether you're an aspiring professional, a seasoned expert, or someone simply keen on understanding the intricate world of psychiatric care, you're in the right place. I'm Dr. John Rossi, a certified PMHMP nurse educator and lead content creator and instructor at Clarity Education Systems and www.pmhmptesting.com. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, we shine light on the mental health care and interventions available to the LGBTQ community. I'm here to guide you on that journey of understanding, empathy, and empowerment. And within this space, we honor diverse identities, and we delve deep into the unique challenges and the triumphs that are faced by this unique population, their friends, and their family regarding their mental health care provided by the PMHMP. So this material will help you better understand many of the topics covered on the ANCC certification exam regarding the care of LGBTQ personnel. So the LGBTQ community is, is rich with this diverse identity and experiences and stories. Yet, like any other group, it is not immune to the challenges of mental health. In fact, research indicates that this population often faces higher rates of mental health issues when compared to their cisgender and heterosexual counterparts. Holistic mental health care, in essence, this treats the whole person, right? We take into account the mental and social factors, rather than just the symptoms of the disorder and distress. So in context of the LGBTQ population, Providing holistic care means recognizing and addressing those unique experiences, challenges, and needs of each one of these individuals. Now, regardless of a provider's personal views or opinions, it's crucial that we offer holistic care for very specific reasons. First, we have a professional and ethical obligation. Mental health professionals have this ethical duty to provide competent and unbiased care to their patients. This means that we set aside any personal views and beliefs to prioritize the patient's well-being. Next, regardless of personal views or beliefs, the primary responsibility of mental health professionals is to be the well-being of their patients. This means prioritizing evidence-based, holistic, and affirming care that addresses those unique needs and experiences of the population such as not only upholding ethical standards, but also ensuring the best possible outcomes for our patients. For instance, the LGBTQ youth are notably more likely to experience depression, anxiety, and, and suicidal ideation. Why? What are the reasons? Well, they're multifaceted, but a large part of it boils down to the external societal pressures and those stressors. Stigma, for one, remains pervasive. So despite progress made in recent decades, many LGBTQ individuals still encounter derogatory remarks. They face outright discrimination or grapple with those internalized negative beliefs about their own identities. Then there's that minority stress, right? The strain that comes from being part of a marginalized group. This stress is it's cumulative, and it can arise from various sources— be it family rejection, societal discrimination, or even microaggressions within daily interactions. So it's essential to understand these factors, not just as statistics or abstract concepts, but as real, tangible forces that are impacting the lives of these individuals every single day. Recognizing them is the first step towards creating a more inclusive, supportive environment for everyone within the therapeutic relationship. To navigate any terrain, it's essential to understand its language. 
the world of gender and sexual diversity has its own lexicon, each term offering insight into the varying ways that they experience human life and express themselves. So let's start with some of the fundamental definitions. Sexual orientation, for instance, refers to whom one is attracted to, whether it's the same gender, a different gender, or irrespective of gender. Examples can include being gay, lesbian, bisexual, and asexual. On the other hand, gender identity delves into one's internal sense of being male, female, both, neither, or somewhere in between. This can encompass identities like transgender, genderqueer, or non-binary. And then there's biological sex, which refers to the physical characteristics like chromosomes, hormone levels, and reproductive organs that were typically assigned as male or female at birth. However, it is important to note that even biological sex isn't strictly binary, as intersex individuals may be born with variations in physical sex characteristics. Understanding these distinctions is paramount. By doing so, we not only respect and affirm people's identities and their experiences, but we also challenge outdated or overly simplistic views of gender and sexuality. The LGBTQ community encompasses a wide range of identities and orientations. Here are some of the primary terms and definitions associated with this community. So stick with me. There's a lot of them. It's going to take a little bit, but by the end of it, you're going to be expected to understand each one of these terms and how they apply in questions on your certification exam, right? So LGBTQ+, this is an acronym standing for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer questioning with the plus denoting the inclusion of other sexualities, genders, and identities. So it's a very encompassing and really it's, it's, a, it's a complex definition for that acronym. Lesbian is a woman who is attracted to another woman. Gay is a person who is attracted to members of the same gender. While it can refer to both men and women, it's often used to describe men who are attracted to other men. Then we have bisexual or bi, a person who is attracted to both men and women. Transgender, also known as trans, is a person whose gender identity doesn't align with the sex they were assigned with at birth. Queer is a broad term that can be used by anyone under the LGBTQ umbrella who doesn't identify as strictly heterosexual or cisgender. It was historically used as a slur, but has been recently reclaimed by many within the community. Then we have questioning. So questioning denotes someone who is unsure or still exploring their sexuality or their gender identity. Intersex is a person born with physical sex characteristics that don't fit typical definitions of male or female. Asexual or ace, this is seen as a person who has little to no sexual attraction to others, whereas a pansexual or pan is a person who is attracted to individuals regardless of their gender or their gender identity. Then we have genderqueer or non-binary, and this describes the identity that doesn't fit within the traditional binary of male or female. Gender fluid is a person whose gender identity shifts over time or in different situations. Cisgender or cis, this is a person whose gender identity aligns with the sex they were assigned with at birth. We have a concept called two-spirit. Now this is a term used by many indigenous North Americans to describe a person who embodies both masculine and feminine spirits. Now an ally is someone who supports and advocates for the rights and acceptance of LGBTQ individuals, even though they may identify as cisgender or heterosexual. 
Okay, and then we have agender. So agender is a person who doesn't identify with any gender. Demisexual is a person who doesn't experience sexual attraction unless they form a deep emotional connection. And then finally, we have an aromantic. This is a person who experiences little or no romantic attraction to others at all. So this list that I just rattled off, this is not exhaustive. There are others that are out there. And the language within the LGBTQ community can be fluid and evolve over time, depending on what's going on within the community and how they are trying to communicate with others that they are not technically associated with by their standards. So it's always important to listen to an individual's preferences for how they, how they describe themselves or how they want to be described, um, specifically when they're talking about their own identities. So now let's move on to understanding the unique challenges and the needs of this population and why it's so crucial for, for PMHMPs to provide optimal care to this uh, specialized group. So culturally competent intake interviews, that's going to be something you definitely want to be familiar with, a term that is um, not only given to this community, but other minority groups as well. So cultural hum humility, it's essentially an approach um, within the assessment where we have openness to learn about the patient's unique experiences and needs. We recognize that one's personal beliefs or biases may, may interfere and should be set aside during the assessment. So you're, you're doing your own personal inventory and then making sure that when you identify conflicts that you are setting those aside in order to totally and wholly concentrate on this patient. So sexual orientation and gender identity questions, they're going to come up in your interviews and you want to incorporate those questions that give the patient an opportunity to disclose their sexual orientation and gender identity in a non-threatening manner. Don't tiptoe around it. You want to be very open and, and forthright with it, but we want to do it in a way that makes them feel comfortable and willing to share information that is probably very private to them. And for some, they may have never even expressed it to any other individual, and you may be the very first person. So getting them to open up is going to be super important as you start to not only learn who they are and build that therapeutic relationship, but then when establishing your, your interventions as they come about after you make your diagnosis. So confidentiality is vital. You have to make sure that the patient um, understands that their responses are confidential in order to encourage them to answer honestly. So understanding and recognizing that the LGBTQ individuals might face unique stressors related to their sexual orientation, their gender identity, or their expression um, will help overcome the stigma and the prejudice and discrimination and violence that they have, you know, come to feel familiar with. And unfortunately, that's the case for many, especially when you start getting um, to patients that may be in their, their early to late 40s and beyond. That older generation, which is, that's not technically older. I know 40 is not that old. But, you know, we're talking about people that were born in the 70s and 80s. It doesn't seem that long ago, but it, when you think about how far we've come just in the last 10 years with this, with this realm of dealing with our patients and understanding their side of things, it's rather recent. So even if you have a 40-year-old in the room, it, it may be very difficult for them to open up about their sexuality because in the early 90s, they may not have been able to say anything for fear of discrimination and uh, violence towards them. So physical health plays a huge part in all of this, and trauma and stress can manifest in various physical ailments, such as sleep disturbances, headaches, and gastrointestinal complications. So these will be things you'll want to follow up with the patient, um, you know, 
why are they having these somatic symptoms when no other signs or symptoms have brought about any medical diagnoses? Well, they could be experiencing this because of some of the anxiety and pent-up aggression and, and sadness that they've been feeling due to their sexual identity. Their mental health obviously increased risk for depression, anxiety, substance use, and suicidal ideation or behaviors within the LGBTQ population are higher. So social indicators, we have to look for social withdrawal, decreased performance at work or school, and then strained relationships with family and friends as well. And then we want to assess for that history of, of discrimination and victimization. We want to ask those questions about bullying, harassment, or violence that may be related to their particular status. So additional key topics that we want to really hone in on and understand is um, the idea of affirmative care. So ensuring that treatment approaches are affirmative and validating for the individual's identity and experiences. Then we go into something called transition-related care and understanding the specific needs of transgender and gender nonconforming individuals, including um, having a knowledge about hormone therapies, surgeries, and associated mental uh, needs. We're, we're going to dive into each one of these um, over the next uh, few minutes, but just wanted to give kind of a, an overall thought about these key topics and these key interventions that we are going to need to know about in order to treat them wholly. Okay, safety and risk assessment. So LGBTQ youth and adults might have that higher risk for suicide like we talked about. Additionally, they could also have higher risks for self-harm or substance use. So it's vital to assess these risks regularly and provide those appropriate interventions. Family dynamics, so many individuals might face rejection or misunderstanding from family members, which can be a significant source of stress and trauma for them. Then we need to be able to familiarize ourselves and the patient with appropriate resources and referrals, so support groups, community resources. That way we ensure that the patient has access to all of these safe and affirming spaces, not only them, but us as well, that we are familiar with them and that we are comfortable with sharing information about these resources and referrals to them. So it's something that we need to at least, you know, if we don't attend, we are very familiar with the literature. So that way we feel comfortable in sharing it. Okay, intersectionality. So this is when we recognize that the LGBTQ individuals can also belong to other marginalized groups. So for instance, uh, for instance race or disability, socioeconomic um, statuses. So their experiences can be shaped by the intersections of these identities. And this is complex, right, when you think about it. Now we're, we've got the layered onion effect, right? So these different layers of, of complexities, and they have to be considered in order for us to assess and intervene and treat appropriately. And then finally, we have their medical concerns, especially for those that are transgender. There might be medical concerns, um, interactions with other medical teams, or special considerations such as hormone therapy that the PMHMP should be aware of in order to progress appropriately with treatment plans and care plans. So essentially it's, it's providing this comprehensive and culturally competent psychiatric mental health care for the population and it's not just about understanding specific symptoms and treatments. It goes so far beyond that. It's about respecting and validating each individual's experience and then advocating for their rights and their well-being. We have to ensure, again, that they have access to the care and support that they need and, quite honestly, the support that they deserve. Okay, so 
Now I want to talk a little more about these therapies that we just discussed, and that first one being affirmative, uh, affirmative therapy principles. So providing an affirmative and inclusive therapeutic environment is essential in order to create that environment where they feel, the client feels, safe, accepted, and understood. This includes having inclusive paperwork, displaying symbols of support, like, you know, for instance, you could, you could have a pride flag, especially if you know you live within a population that has a lot of individuals within this community. Um, and then using gender-inclusive language. Find out what your patient wants to be called. Find out what they identify with, and then stick with it. And now, one thing that is difficult, especially for those of us that may be in our 40s, our 50s, or 60s, that, you know, we're not as in tune with the, uh, with the lingo and the conversations that younger generations are having today, so we may mess up, right? I do this in practice quite often. I know I have a, um, a, an individual that is going through a gender change, and let's, let's call it a male to female, um, when we when we speak in binary terms, and you know, I'll I'll, I'll have to correct myself because I may still say he or she or he or him, when in reality I want to call her, her, which is what she's comfortable with. Um, they're going to be okay with that as long as you are upfront with it. You know, I am so sorry, I did it again. You got to make sure and and remind me when I mess up so that I, I make sure I get it right the next time. Right? Have this open conversation with them, and I think that you'll find they are very caring about it. I think that they understand it. It's whenever there's conflict that's involved with it where, you know, we start to, for lack of a better term, butt heads with one another. So just being open and receptive and then correcting yourself and apologizing when appropriate. And that will also help build a therapeutic relationship. Okay, the importance of validating lived experiences. That is a huge part of affirmative therapy. So recognizing and validating the unique experiences of LGBTQ individuals that is paramount. This can range from experiences of discrimination like we talked about and then that family rejection that can often occur to the joys of coming out and the joy of being part of a community that they have, you know, for a lot of them have just been really reluctant to join, but they knew it would bring them so much joy and finally let them feel safe and, and let them feel a part of something that makes sense to them. So we get to experience all of that with them and you should consider that as you move forward in your care and your treatment plans. So assessing and addressing mental health disparities. LGBTQ individuals often experience that higher rate of mental health um, and suicidal ideation complications, right? Uh, when, when compared to heterosexual or cisgendered counterparts. So we need to be equipped to assess those disparities and understand their root causes. And then the hormonal changes. For transgender and non-binary patients, understanding hormone therapies and their effects on mental health is vital. So the PMHMP should be aware of those potential drug interactions and side effects. So let's talk about that in depth right now. What types of hormone therapies do we have? Very applicable questions for the certification exam. So first we have feminizing hormone therapy. This usually involves a combination of estrogen and, and um, excuse me, anti-androgens, and then commonly used medications uh, which include estradiol, spironolactone, and progesterone. So all part of those feminizing hormone therapies. Then we have masculizing hormone treatments as well, and these primarily involve the administration of testosterone. So as you can expect, messing with these hormonal levels and changing them, one, they're going to start feeling more aligned with what they feel they are and they believe they are, 
But if, let's, for example, say that they move to an area where testosterone therapy is not readily available, and they're autom- you know, all of a sudden they're not getting the testosterone that they had previously been getting, they're going to they're gonna feel that on a very real and somatic level. So we have to be ready to step in and intervene, or else we're going to be causing them a lot more pain and discomfort if we do not treat appropriately, and we are not effectively communicating with potentially new providers. You know, if, if you are caring for um, an individual that's transitioning and you know they're moving from a large population area to a smaller one where there may only be a couple of, of providers available, taking that extra step to call and say, hey, you've got this patient coming. This is the situation. This is the medication that he or she is on. And this is the plan. I would, you know, like to be a part of making sure that this is communicated, and that way he or she is ready to move right into treatment afterwards. Obviously, this is all done within, you know, the uh, the confines of, of HIPAA and communicating the information appropriately as per the patient's permission. But this will establish a way for you to move forward with the patient and get them the care that they need. So the mental health impacts, there are some positive effects when we, when we talk about hormone therapies. Many transgender individuals report improved mood and reduced gender dysphoria after starting the therapy. For some, hormone therapy can lead to decreased anxiety, de- decreased pr- uh, depression, and um, suicidal ideations can also decrease. Now, as I just talked about, there are those potential challenges. So some individuals may experience mood swings, increased irritability, or changes in mental health symptoms. So it's crucial to really differentiate between the effects of the hormone treatment and other potential contributing factors that they may be dealing with. Bone health is also an issue. We need to understand that estrogen and testosterone play critical roles in bone health. So long-term suppression of either hormone can increase the risk of osteoporosis. Regular bone density screenings are are often recommended in these cases, especially for those on um, anti-androgenins or post-surgical patients once they get out of the surgical process. I, I may have messed up the word before anti-androgens. That's, that's, that's my hard word for the day, apparently, in today's, uh, in today's discussion, but you get my drift. All right, cardiovascular health, hormone therapies, uh, especially estrogen, these can carry risks associated with uh, blood clotting, high blood pressure, and other cardiovascular concerns. So again, regular monitoring and lifestyle recommendations. For instance, no smoking whenever they're on these hormone treatments. This can help manage a lot of the risks that are, that are associated with the treatments. Liver health, testosterone, especially when administered orally or in high doses, this can impact liver function. So regular liver function tests may be necessary. We're going to see metabolic changes. So hormone therapy can influence body fat distribution, muscle mass, and overall metabolization and metabolism. So this can have um, implications for not only weight gain, but cardiovascular health that we just talked about, but also diabetes. So potential drug interactions. Some of these medications may interact with hormone therapies, altering their effectiveness or causing adverse reactions or effects. So we start looking into those inducing and inhibiting factors. So we've got to really pay attention to what drugs they're on, and it's crucial to take that comprehensive um, medication inventory or history or reconciliation in order to monitor for those potential interactions and then make changes where appropriate. Fertility um, considerations and um, really having this open discussion with them. So both feminizing and masculinizing hormones, these therapies can, can interact and impact fertility. 
So it's going to be super important to discuss those rep- uh, reproductive goals and uh, potential fertility preservation options and then what we need to do and what we need to start before hormone therapy even you know gets talked about or implemented. Surgical considerations, so some transgender individuals might undergo surgeries as part of their transition. This can include what's commonly referred to as top surgery or bottom surgery, such as a mastectomy, um, a vaginoplasty, or a phalloplasty. So really interesting um, surgeries. I highly encourage you to look these up and, and see what they're about. See what the patient has to go through. For many of these individuals, they have to wait a full year, undergo therapy, um, you know, be on the hormones, before they can even get approved to go in and have surgical alterations. So please become familiar with the process as well as what they actually experience. That way you can understand how they're feeling afterwards, the pain that may be associated with it, and what special considerations need to be taken into account when providing the treatment plan for them post-surgery. All right, so monitoring and following up. Obviously, uh, regular medical monitoring, right, including blood pressure, uh, blood tests, uh, crucial to hormone levels and appropriate, and we have to check them for those potential side effects and then make adjustments to the doses as needed. Informed consent. If there's anything I can preach to you today about, it's maintaining and making sure that they have informed consent. Now, it's, it's essential to ensure that transgender patients are informed of the benefits, the risks, and potential side effects of hormone therapy and any other medical interventions that you will perform or talk with them about. All right, we have to make sure that they are receiving mental health evaluations. There are some guidelines recommended um, for mental health evaluation before starting hormone therapy and when undergoing surgery. So the goal isn't to be a gatekeeper or try to persuade them one way or another, but it's to ensure that the patient is well supported and that they're making informed decisions. That's a key, right? That if, if another foot stomp there is informed consent and then informed decision-making based on the education that you provide to them. Very, very key topics um, that you'll probably see on your certification exam. Okay, considerations of other medical conditions. Uh, transgender individuals, like, like all patients, they might have other coexisting medical conditions. So this intersection of these conditions with hormone therapy you have to carefully monitor it. All right, now I want to talk a little bit more about addressing the minority stress that we talked about earlier. Minority stress refers to the chronic social stress experienced by marginalized groups. This stress can arise from experiences such as discrimination in school, discrimination within the workforce, stigma that's uh, found within families or religious organizations, and then stigma just in general within the general population and then these microaggressions that, that they often see. So therapeutic, therapeutic excuse me, interventions, um, these words just all kind of roll together off the tongue sometimes. We have to address and mitigate the stressors. It's all about mitigation of stressors. So for individuals within the population, the stress can arise from experiences that they have no control over, and they're just thrown into the situation. So they feel you know, that there's prejudice against them, that they're going to be rejected by their family or loved ones. And so they will either conceal their identity or just, you know, go on the extreme and then completely separate themselves from their their support system and their social network because they're afraid of what's going to happen or because of the way they did react. So this stress is believed to contribute to those heightened risks for mental health disorders within that community. So 
let's talk about some of the key therapeutic interventions that we can utilize for addressing those minority stressors and the stress that they often feel because they are LGBTQ+. So cognitive behavioral therapy, we're all familiar with CBT. This can help individuals identify negative thought patterns that are related to the identity and replace them with those more positive adaptive ones. Techniques such as cognitive restructuring can be particularly helpful. Um, this helps to challenge and change internalized negative beliefs of oneself. Affirmative therapy that we talked about at the beginning, this approach focuses on affirming identities and experiences, emphasizing the importance of understanding and addressing unique challenges, including the experiences that they are having with discrimination and stigma. We want to be like, yes, that's absolutely discrimination. Yes, that's absolutely stigma. Call it what it is. Communicate that with them so that way they feel affirmed and they know, yeah, you're right. This isn't appropriate behavior. I shouldn't have been called that, and I should stand up for myself in a healthy way. Mindfulness and stress reduction. So we've got great mindfulness-based interventions, uh, interventions such as uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction or MBSR. So this can help individuals become more aware of their reactions to stressors and develop healthier coping mechanisms. Okay, techniques like uh, deep breathing, um, meditation, let's think about yoga, grounding exercises. These are all very helpful. Interpersonal psychotherapy or IPT. So IPT addresses interpersonal issues such as difficulties in relationships or feeling isolated due to one's LGBTQ identity. Support groups. We can, we can definitely recommend different support groups or run them ourselves within our practices. So um, these support groups can provide a safe space for individuals to share those experiences, seek advice, and find camaraderie, right? In the second episode of this podcast, we talked about those, those group um, concepts, and this is definitely one where if they're able to say, you know, this happened to me, and then somebody else within that group confirms that, hey, yeah, that happened to me as well. Really? Well, how did you get through it? What did you do in order to overcome? And now we start building these uh, healthy conversations and we learn from one another. And then you as the provider are guiding and directing it so that way it stays on track. It stays, you know, within boundaries that are set at the beginning of the group. But you're also there as the cheerleader and the, um, you know, the voice of, yes, explore that topic. And, you know, no, that maybe that wasn't the healthiest way to handle that. Great, great example. But let's talk about what may have been a healthier way, right? So we, we can uh, guide the discussion that way it stays within healthy, um, you know, confines and boundaries and uh, can be very beneficial for everyone involved. Family therapy. So for the uh, LGBTQ individuals that are facing issues within their family, rejection or conflict, um, family therapy therapy can be super beneficial. So therapists can educate family members about these identities and the issues and the vocabulary and promote understanding and acceptance. Then we have narrative therapy. This approach allows um, individuals to rewrite their life stories in a way that emphasizes strengths and resilience and positive outcomes. Uh, I had one experience with narrative therapy involving a um, individual that was, you know, a drag queen and uh, he, he loved his life and uh, he did, he did um, identify as he, and 
you know, it was he had so many wonderful experiences, just really some fun things that he was able to participate in and just had this amazing stage presence and really enjoyed what he was doing. But there were so many things that he had never dealt with as it pertains to his family and his work and, uh, you know, discrimination and heart, hard, hard um, bullying that he experienced when growing up. So we were able to sit down and rewrite the narrative. We took all of these, you know, very positive aspects of his life and then rewrote them so that way they kind of overshadowed and pushed back all of the negativeness that he had experienced. We'd already gotten past it all. He was not in those experiences anymore, so we were in a safe place. But now we could rewrite the story so that way his story was not about all of the hate, discrimination, and, and uh, harmfulness, but it was, it was primarily about all of the the joy and happiness and, and wonderful situations that he was currently in. So narrative therapy can be very beneficial. Exposure therapy. So for those that have experienced those traumatic events that related to their identity, such as hate crimes, exposure therapy can be a component of trauma-focused interventions. Um, this is often seen in rape cases. We, we see a lot of um, instances of sexual assault within the community. So exposure therapy, very, very appropriate. Psychoeducation, this is when we educate the individuals about minority stress, that way they know it is, what exactly it is, and, and uh, they can recognize it and then start to deal with it. And they can feel empowered at that point once they feel educated about it. And it can help individuals recognize the external sources of their stress and then differentiate them from the internal or personal failures that they, that they are experiencing. Resilience training. So focusing on building resilience can help LGBTQ individuals cope with adversities more effectively. These strategy, uh, strategies might include developing social support networks with each other, engaging in self-care activities, and then setting healthy boundaries for themselves. Advocacy training. So this is when we empower LGBTQ individuals to become advocates for themselves and their community in order to be more therapeutic. So this might involve learning about LGBTQ rights, joining activist groups, or engaging in community outreach. So as the provider, especially if you have a lot of patients that fit this you know, um, population, you need to be an advocate for them by understanding how they can advocate for themselves. Pharmacotherapy, we will touch a little bit on that real quick. So while medications don't directly target minority stress, they can be beneficial for managing associated mental health symptoms, you know, such as the depression and the anxiety. So incorporating these interventions, it does require cultural competence and deep understanding for the specific stressors faced by these individuals. Interventions should be tailored to the unique needs and circumstances of that individual. And then collaborating with LGBTQ organizations and utilizing peer support resources into, in order to enhance those therapeutic processes. So we don't just throw meds at them and say, hey, this is going to help you feel better. You're not going to be depressed anymore. It's not going to cut it. For this, for this population, it's a, it's a part of it. It's, it's augmentative. But we are going to need ongoing supportive therapy. And then all of the therapies that we just discussed can be super beneficial in the long run. So one, one thing that you might run into, not might, I think you probably will, is the, is the, um, the situation of navigating coming out, okay? So this is the process of coming out or, you know, back, back when I was younger, I'm, I'm 45, so I've been around a little bit, you know, we would always say coming out of the closet, so it's uh, indicative of that. It's kind of from that era. 
So coming out can be a significant event for an LGBTQ person with potential impacts on their mental health, obviously. So we should be prepared to support patients through that part of the journey. We need to consider their individual circumstances like how old they are, uh, what cultural backgrounds they belong to. Are they LDS? Are they Catholic? Um, do they have a religion? Do they not? Um, are they already, you know, nowadays we have lots of children that are part of same-sex uh, parenting. They can be very confused, especially if we, we flip it, right? We've got two parents, let's, let's say two fathers, um, that this child has always kind of witnessed their relationship and, you know, maybe a little bit confused because let's say this is a, a young boy who is, you know, going through puberty and coming of age now, but he is interested in, in females or the opposite sex. So helping that individual kind of on the flip side, you know, we're not talking about um, LGBTQ at this point. We're talking about helping um, a young, a young, you know, teenager understand their heterosexuality and what that means as it pertains to living in a homosexual environment where both of the parents have have been there their whole life and now they're trying to explore their own sexuality. So you, you can see how diverse and really multi-layered this situation can be, which is why it's so important that we stay up to date on what's happening and what they're saying and how they're expressing themselves so that way we can really be a part of the, of the conversation um, in a lot of different ways. All right, trauma-informed care. So many LGBTQ individuals experience trauma, whether it's direct, right, um, or, you know, secondary to family rejection and whatnot. So trauma-informed care, a little bit different than the things that we talked about earlier. Um, trauma-informed really recognizes the profound impacts of the experiences on the mental health particularly. So trauma-informed care is an approach to treat and recognize um, the response to the trauma that they, may have, that they may have been experiencing their entire lives for many of them. And then it emphasizes creating an environment of safety, trustworthiness, choice, collaboration, and empowerment. So given the high rates of trauma within the community arising from, you know, things like discrimination, violence, rejection, and more, it's, it's crucial to, to utilize this approach when we look at their, um, their situation through trauma-informed lenses or glasses. All right, so trauma-informed care can be applied specifically by understanding and recognizing that many individuals have faced that trauma, and then we have to help them verbalize it. We have to help them understand what a hate crime is. We have to help them um, see through the discrimination so they can identify why it was wrong and why they should feel the way that they're feeling when something like that happens, and then how to overcome the feelings once they start to deal with the discrimination and the hate. So understand also that these experiences and this trauma can lead to a heightened risk for substance abuse and uh, suicidal ideation. I I've said that quite a few times already in this podcast because it it's, it's just really important that you understand that. It's something that you have to fully address. We do it with most of our patients, but really when you're dealing with somebody that's um, had trauma and they haven't really dealt with it and it's, uh, you know, we have this multi-layer issue with not only trauma, but also maybe trying to understand their sexual identity or, you know, come into terms with who they are, then it's just so vital that you create some type of safe environment this needs to be a physically safe, a, an emotionally safe, and psychologically safe environment 
to, to welcome in that trauma-informed care and start affirming environments to have that, um, that inclusive situation um, that allows them to open up clearly. It's all about building trust, right? Being transparent, being um, being consistent with the way that you deliver care to these individuals, and f- and really working hard to meet them at their level, so that way they feel like you're you're understanding them and they're being heard. This empowers them. It's about recognizing the agency of autonomy, and then helping them find that autonomy to find their voice and to become. Um, not only comfortable with where they're living, but willing to go beyond that and uh, have a positive influence on their community. All right, so a lot of, lot of great uh, points when it comes to assessment and forming interventions for the LGBTQ population. Ultimately, one of the most important things that we want to ensure is that we avoid all, at all costs, avoid re-traumatization. So we have to be cautious about inadvertently traumatizing individuals by challenging or invalidating their identities, experiences, or feelings, or traumatizing situations that they're telling you about. Um, we want to approach topics of, tra- of trauma gently and then offer support while we go along and then constantly finding opportunities to ground them as needed. That's going to help build resilience. It's going, to, it's going to create strength-based approaches to care. So when we focus on the inherent strengths and the resilience of the LGBTQ individual, we're going to highlight their capacity for growth, their, their opportunities for healing and empowerment. And then we recognize and celebrate those milestones and those achievements in their trauma recovery journal or journey. Definitely stop to say, hey, this just happened. You just got through this. We just did this together, but you are the one that really did the work. And, and we need to talk about that and really feel good about it and help them to celebrate those, uh, those unique moments in their life, especially if they've never had it before. And, and trauma has just completely engulfed every situation since they, you know, since they can remember. So incorporating trauma-informed care, these, these principles, um, it's not just best practice. It's necessary. It's, it's a necessary component to providing that overall compassionate and effective, respectful care. You hear me talk about it in the seminars if you're a part of our um, PMHMP review course. When we talk about cultural care, and this is definitely a cultural care concept, it's always about respect. Incidentally, if you see respect in an answer when you know you're looking at a, cultural, a culturally competent question, choose the answer that has respect in it. 100%. All right, so we do need to talk about um, supporting sexual health within this population. It can be something that's very uncomfortable for them, and if you haven't at least you know, practiced discussing it and feeling comfortable with some of the issues that arise in supporting sexual health within the LGBTQ population, they're going to feel your, you know, they're going to feel the uneasiness and the uh, the frustration of not knowing exactly what to say. So super important that you practice it and that you're familiar with some of the main points and topics related to supporting sexual health. 
So this includes the PMHMP being able to include safer sex practices and understanding the specific risks and concerns. So providing LGBTQ plus inclusive sex education that covers topics relevant to um, all sexual orientations and their gender identities. And we need to ensure that medical facilities and clinics are welcoming and affirming these individuals. This can include displaying positive signage, offering gender-neutral restrooms, and using inclusive language in the paperwork. So we have to train our healthcare staff in these cultural competencies. It's not just our responsibility as the provider, but everybody on the staff needs to be familiar with it as well. We also need to provide accessible and regular STI testing while educating and provide prophylactic treatments such as pre-exposure prophylaxis or pre-EP for HIV prevention, especially for populations at higher risk. So offer guidance on fertility, contraception, and reproductive health that is relevant to all gender identities and, again, sexual orientations. For transgender and non-binary individuals, discuss the impacts of hormone therapy on fertility specifically, and then the options for fertility preservation. We need to offer relationship counseling that includes all relationship types and structures, recognizing unique dynamics that can be present within the population. Support and advocate for policies that protect the rights of the LGBTQ individuals, ensuring their success on health care, and promote sexual health education and research tailors uh, that's tailored to their needs, right? So again, as PMHMPs, you're not just a provider. You are an educator, you are an advocate, uh, and you're, you're a legislator in some aspects, right? If not a legislator, then, then somebody who supports legislation that is inclusive for everyone and that helps the healthcare status of every citizen of the, of the nation. Okay, interdisciplinary collaboration is going to be important. So collaborating with other healthcare providers, including endocrinologists, primary care providers, therapists specializing in gender and sexual identity, this can provide that comprehensive care that they are, that they are needing and requiring. And then obviously continue in education in this field as well. So understanding their mental health, it's rapidly evolving, and the PMHMP should commit to that ongoing education in order to stay up to date. It's a great way to get your CEs, so uh, definitely include that in your education plan. All right, now speaking um, directly about older LGBTQ plus adults, also a significant area of concern. The unique challenges that are faced by these individuals throughout their lives can obviously influence their mental well-being as they age. So we do have some di distinct challenges. So lifetime of stigma and discrimination. I know we've talked about this a lot, but it really is important once you get to an older individual. So many older adults have lived through times when societal acceptance wasn't even was even less than it is today. And I feel like we're doing better today. But again, like I said, think about the 90s, the 80s, the 70s. You know, I, I feel like the 70s and 80s may have been a little different, but the 90s and the 2000s, it was definitely becoming more um, of a topic. And so because of things like emerging social media, email accounts, things like this, um, opposition was starting to grow because now they were starting to feel like they had a voice. And obviously that's going to cause conflict, um, especially in groups that didn't think that it was okay. So you have this this population, 40s, 50s, and 60-year-olds, that may have faced a lot more discrimination than, than many individuals face today. So they may have faced things like um, being a part of the HIV-AIDS epidemic. This had a profound impact on community, uh, leading to loss, grief, and trauma. 
Due to the past rejections or the need to live a concealed life, some older adults may lack strong family support systems. Their, cho- uh, their chosen families um, may be their close friends or their partners. So they might have um, also passed away, right? So if we have this, this individual that you know, 20, 30 years ago didn't feel the support or rejected by their family, and now they formed a new family, well, you know, maybe, maybe a lot of those individuals uh, were, were those that were affected by the AIDS epidemic, and so they've passed away in, in recent years. You know, whatever it may be. Um, the point is, family units for these individuals can be very different, and we have to be familiar with that concept and with that construct in order to help and give the support that we need to give them in order to make sure that they are taken care of, not only physically and mentally, but also socially um, as well. So past negative experiences with healthcare systems is also an issue, where they might have faced discrimination or ignorance by providers or staff. This can make uh, them hesitant to seek medical or psychiatric care, which is obviously detrimental to their overall well-being. Discrimination throughout life can lead to economic disparities in older adults as well, with some older adults facing higher poverty rates within the LGBTQ plus older population. Some legal concerns that have to be considered as well. Um, So without legal protections or without any family support, these older individuals might face challenges like um, in areas like housing or healthcare decision making and also inheritances. So addressing isolation and historical traumas. So we'll, we'll take this as both the older adult population and, you know, just emerging populations as well. So again, we're talking about offering them affirmative therapy, peer support and group support, trauma-focused care. Uh, we want to help them reconnect with the community. So some older adults may have distanced themselves from the LGTB plus community over the years. And so reconnecting them and helping them see where the community has gone and where they're at now can help them feel more uh, be- like they belong and that they're a part of uh, something that they can understand and connect with. Family therapy, obviously going to be important for um, building strong biological families as well as, you know, families that they've created themselves in order to have this, this space for understanding, healing, and reconnection. And then safe and affirming housing options, uh, establishing LGBTQ plus friendly senior housing or assisted living communities. This is ensuring that these older adults live in environments free from discrimination. So, you know, we may not consider a lot of these thoughts or ideas, but it's vitally important to this aging population. And then as, you know, younger populations continue to age, they're going to need that support as well. So starting now is going to be vital. All right. So LGBTQ plus uh, communities face unique challenges that can influence substance use patterns. Uh, Definitely to talk about that. We see it um, day in and day out, higher rates of use. So studies have indicated that these individuals may have higher rates of substance use compared to their heterosexual and cisgender counterparts. These disparities um, especially are are really well pronounced with the use of alcohol use, tobacco, and then obviously other drugs, but really the alcohol and tobacco. So internalized homophobia, transphobia, um, this has... uh, provided internalized negative feedback beliefs, and so that harbors negative feelings about their own identity and therefore increases vulnerability to substance abuse. Historically, LGBTQ plus social uh, spaces have always been in locations like bars and clubs. They've played a significant role in, in, within the community due to their role 
um, in providing that kind of safe gathering place. So this could also contribute to that normalized alcohol or substance abuse simply because of the socialization and where it took place. Then we have co-occurring medical disorders um, where commu this community experiences, again, those higher rates of, medical, of uh, mental health disorders such as depression and anxiety that can also lead to increased substance abuse um, and addiction. Tailoring interventions and treatments uh, to this population is going to be um, probably the most important thing that you can do as a healthcare provider um, in order to reduce harm and advocate for that person and their community. It's all about the holistic approach, addressing the whole person, including their physical, emotional, social, and spiritual needs. This can enhance recovery outcomes and um, it helps to activate mindfulness, meditation, and then treat them to be um, training themselves on how to integrate more wholly as a person, and then hopefully that will translate to the community as a whole. All right, suicide prevention is, uh, and intervention is going to be a critical topic, uh, not only for your practice, but also on this examination. So we have to recognize the risk factors and warning signs. So big risk factors are going to be that minority stress family rejection, that history of trauma, internalized negative beliefs, substance use and abuse, along with those comorbid mental health disorders, and then ultimately that feeling of isolation or that alone and unsupported in their identity. So all of those are going to be high risk factors for the LGBTQ plus individuals. General warning signs include verbal expressions. They talk about wanting to die or feeling alone, social withdrawal, isolating from friends or family or social activities. Behavior changes, increased substance use, sleep disturbances, or giving away their belongings. Mood shifts, rapid mood swings, and prolonged sadness or sudden calmness after a depressive episode. And then preoccupation with death, so frequent conversations or expressions about death or dying. So these are all things you want to look out for during your assessment and when you're just in conversation with the patient. A lot of times they won't even realize that they're, that they're talking about it because it's become so common in their in their internal and external narrative that they just speak about it like most normal people i don't like using the term quote unquote normal but most normal conversation would have right so they're speaking like you would you know talk about the activities that you did the other night that's how um, they're going to start talking about death dying and um, situations associated with suicide so Again, implementing um, a specific suicide prevention strategy, utilizing all of those therapies that we've already talked about, and then adding uh, things like school-based interventions, implementing inclusive curriculums and anti-bullying programs within the schools. This, this establishes gay-straight alliances in school programs, and that fosters the community. Look, you do not have to agree with what they, with the, with, with what they believe or, or how they live their life. You do, however, have to see them as a person. And so we have to teach that inclusivity and just simply caring for a human being at the very basic level is a necessity for everyone. Gay, straight, bi, does not matter. We all need it. And that can, that can be established in uh, school-based programs, um, in religious programs, what have you. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you believe. It matters how you treat them. And uh, we want to make sure that everyone feels included. And that's a huge part of implementing an anti-suicide or a suicide prevention strategy. Uh, peer mentorship. So peer mentorship programs can connect younger LGBTQ plus individuals with older. And that experience um, 
provides guidance, support, and a sense of hope, while at the same time connecting the older generation to the younger. Public awareness campaigns promoting understanding and acceptance of these identities and um, helping combat societal stigma in order to reduce minority stress. Accessibility resources, um, making it more accessible uh, to include crisis helplines and then catering to the specific needs of this population. Research and collaboration. So we want to collaborate with these LGBTQ plus organizations within our practices in order to help connect the research and develop evidence-based suicide prevention strategies tailored to the community. And finally, it's all about the holistic approach, recognizing the interplay of mental, emotional, and social factors in suicide risk, offering interventions that address the whole person, considering their unique experiences and challenges. This includes connecting those that have already been um, exposed to it or may have experienced it themselves. So uh, LGBTQ plus individuals that have tried to commit suicide and have overcome the challenges associated with it, bringing them into the groups and helping them understand uh, by addressing the trauma that they experienced and the challenges that they faced and how they overcame it, communicating that to others that may be going through the same uh, complications as well. So to, to conclude that whole area, um, starting, you know, with um, identifying the different age populations and then how we support them, the LGBTQ plus community faces all of those unique suicide challenges, but targeted culturally competent prevention and intervention strategies, we use these to support the mental well-being and then reduce suicide risks. It's all about collaboration. It's all about voicing the concerns and then doing everything that we can to uh, prevent that, that thought process from occurring. And when it does, restructuring it to more healthy uh, thought processes and um, getting them to the place where they can feel comfortable about why they're having those thoughts and why they may be doing those actions and then using root cause analysis and other uh, strategic advantages that we have as providers to get them to a healthier place. So in summary of everything that we've talked about here, when PMHMPs care for the LGBTQ plus community, it is imperative to combine clinical expertise with cultural competence, ensuring that care is both effective and respectful of each individual's unique experience and their identities. This will come up on your PMHMP certification exam. This will come up in your daily practice if you're already past the exam and you're working uh, with uh, a population that maybe you've never worked with before. You have to understand the terminology. You need to know how they see the world, how they speak within the world, and how to address them in a respectful and holistic way. Thank you so much for listening today. This has been about the LGBTQ plus population, how we treat, how we understand, and how we can better be and how we can be better informed for this unique experience in caring for a very multifaceted, multifaceted and multi-layered group of individuals and group just in general. This has been Dr. Rossi for uh, www.pmhmptesting.com and Clarity Education Systems. I look forward to talking with you in future episodes. Always remember to shine brightly and do everything that you can to help propel this profession forward because we are the future of mental health care. Maybe we're not even the future. I think the future is now. We are here providing the care that is needed to bridge that gap that exists between all other mental health and physical health and just healthcare in general, closing that gap that exists between those and the mental health world. 
Have a great day, night, morning, wherever you are. Just enjoy life and enjoy being a part of this wonderful work that we do. Bye-bye.